I want to ask you a question. Do you remember, if you've been around Fresno long enough, do you remember at Bar, uh, Blackstone and Barstow when there was a pick and save store? Did anybody remember that? Okay, some of us, some of, okay, some young people even. Wow, I'm impressed. I'm not sure how you remember that. But um, so when I was growing up as a kid, that shopping center, pick and save and Kmart were kind of like, the, you know, people made jokes when I was in school in the 80s, like, oh, you know, you go to the blue light special at Kmart and all these, you shop at pick and save, right? That's what kids kind of did. But secretly, I actually love going to pick and save. The reason is my mom would take me there. She would drop me off. She would go buy whatever she was picking and saving, I guess. But she would let me look at this uh, comic books that they sold for 15 cents. Okay, now, if I knew then what I knew now, I would have bought like a ton of those, bagged them, never touched them, and then paid for all my kids' college. But I didn't know that when I was five, six years old. But I remember one day I saw this jumbo-sized comic book, and it had a picture of Superman with boxing gloves and a boxing ring, and he was up against a boxer, and it said, Superman versus Muhammad Ali. <laughs> and I thought, who's that? So I, I asked my parents, I said, who is Muhammad Ali? And they said, well, Muhammad Ali is the greatest boxer who has ever lived. And I was like, wow, that is so cool. And so I went next door to my best friend at the time, Chip, and I, I told him, I said, hey, did you know Muhammad Ali is the greatest boxer who ever lived? And he said, no, he's not. It's Sugar Ray Leonard. And so we got into this debate. And so I was introduced at that young age to the beloved American pastime of debating who's the greatest in sports, right? We, we love to do this. I, uh, I, you know, for example, uh, Jordan, who's better, Jordan or LeBron, right? It, that's not really a debate because we all know it's Jordan, right? But, you know, we pretend there's a debate there. Or, you know, is it Montana or is it Brady? And even though Brady has more rings, I'm still going to vote for Joe, right? You know, because I'm old school like that. But, but we have these debates and we, we bring it into other areas of life as well. Uh, you know, on the grander scale, who's the greatest president? Uh, you know, who's the greatest businessman? You know, and all these different things. But, but then we bring it into our own lives too, where we kind of begin to sort of compare ourselves constantly. And there's this feeling like we, we need to be the greatest uh, and all these different things. But what I, what I want to ask us today is what if Jesus kind of wants to redefine how we view greatness? That, uh, to put it another way, is rather than being about maybe who's in control or who has the best stat sheet or who has the most followers or all these different things, what, what if it's defined differently? What if it's more about how we surrender to God and our capacity to serve other people? What if he redefined that for us? Uh, We're going to be in Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 35 through 52. And a question that Jesus asked is this, what do you want me to do for you? And we're going to see that Jesus actually uses this question to get to the heart of what true greatness actually is. Um, That it's not about pride, but rather humility. It's not about control, but rather surrender. That it's not about having the greatest number of admirers or followers, but rather our capacity to actually serve other people. Uh, Jesus would often use questions in this way to get to the heart, to the truth of what was going on inside of a person. You know, uh, this last year, I've, uh, some of you were talking about even this morning, I've gone through two shoulder surgeries, rotator cuffs, massive tears, uh, I could tell you the story about how I got those, just basically old injuries, aging, wear and tear, overuse, all these things. Uh, the injuries have been there for probably 15 years or so. I finally dealt with them this year. But I was trying to find all kinds of ways to sort of solve my own problem, you know, internet research, try these stretches, whatever, right? 
But it wasn't until I had an MRI done that I actually found out the truth of what was going on. I found out that MRIs actually are more effective than internet research. That's a surprise, right? Um, but in the same way, Jesus is trying to probe, he's trying to go deep, and he does it with uh, two different sets of people in this text today. So we're going to start with the first group in verse 35. We read this, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now that, <clears throat> that's a pretty big question. I don't know if you've ever had to like at your job, go to, uh, to your boss with a big ask, like, you know, you're asking for something if you do, I recommend you don't take this approach. You know, like, hey, boss, uh, put your feet up on his desk or something or her desk. Uh, I just want you to do whatever I ask, right? That's like, wow, okay, that's how you're going to lead this question. But this, this is what James and John do. Now, while it might seem very prideful or presumptuous to us, uh, if we could get inside their heads for a minute, um, there, there actually might be, well, let's actually first, let's ask what they, uh, let's, ask, let's see how Jesus responds before we talk about that. Jesus responds this. He says, what do you want me to do for you? So I don't know if Jesus kept a straight face or what his tone was like, but he, he actually asked them, okay, what do you want me to do? He just, he just kind of rolls with it. And they said, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. So all they're asking is that Jesus would make them rulers of the world. I mean, that's all they're asking for, right? Now, in their minds, however, this might not be as ridiculous as it might seem at first glance. Here, here are some reasons for that. One is uh, in Matthew's gospel, just shortly before this interaction took place, we read that uh, Jesus said this in chapter 19, verse 28, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So in this statement, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's telling them, hey, when the coming kingdom uh, arrives, you're going to sit on thrones with me. So already they've been told they're going to be rulers. So the fact that they're asking this question, it's actually not that presumptuous. They, they already know they're going to be on thrones. They're just asking for thrones numbers one and two rather than like 10, 11, or 12, right? Out of the 12 disciples. Um, along with that, they had a position in their relationship to Jesus where it might make sense that they would be candidates for these top two roles. Because if you remember, there's three disciples who were kind of in that inner circle with Jesus. They were up on the Mount of Transfiguration with him. They were in the Garden of Gethsemane with him praying. It's James and John, these two brothers here, the sons of Zebedee, and Peter. So they're in the, the three inner circle. Now, it is interesting that they're kind of asking this question and Peter's not around. You know, they're kind of doing an end run. They're trying to squeeze Peter out, and they're, they're going to Jesus directly. But, but they, they think, hey, look, there, there's a right hand and there's a left hand. There's two top spots in the kingdom. Maybe the right's a little better than the left, but they're the two top spots. There's three of us. There's not three hands, so we're just going to have to ask without Peter, right? That's all that's happening here. Matthew 20 also adds that their mother actually spoke for them. They kind of used their mother to play the heartstrings of Jesus or attempted to. And uh, their mother was a lady named Salome, who many Bible commentators and scholars believe Salome was the uh, sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, making Salome the aunt of Jesus in his humanity, and then therefore James and John first cousins. So there's kind of a sense that, hey, we are, we are family, so you know we're, 
We're the top two guys. I mean, it just makes sense. So just do whatever we ask. Just come on, give us this role. Why not? See, at this point, James and John, along with all the other followers of Jesus, were really focused on this idea of a coming physical kingdom that Jesus was going to bring, right? And if, if you look at the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, it's very clear, not just uh, about the Messiah, but about this coming day of the Lord and this coming kingdom that the Lord intends one day to rid the world of evil and sin and to establish truth and justice and righteousness and a kingdom where there is no more sickness or suffering or pain and all these things we see in the scriptures of the Old Testament. And Jesus now being the Messiah, they, they are focused on this coming kingdom that he was going to overthrow Rome and he was going to establish this kingdom and they would reign with him in this kingdom. The thing they were missing, which was also in the Old Testament, though not quite as glaring, not as prominent, was that first the Messiah would be a, a suffering servant, that he would be beaten, that he would die. And Jesus would first establish a spiritual kingdom in our hearts and begin his kingdom internally, transformatively through the character and the person and the work of Christ within us before he one day establishes this physical kingdom. And even though it wasn't as prominent in the Old Testament, leading up to this conversation, Jesus has stated this many times in the verses leading up to this very interaction in other places in the Gospels. Jesus has repeatedly said, as we're going to Jerusalem, because that's where they're headed at this point, they're on their final trip to Jerusalem, he has told them many times, the Son of Man is going to suffer, he is going to die, he is going to uh, die for sins and rise again. So Jesus has tried to emphasize this, but they're, they're not focused on that. And before, again, we get too hard on James and John or the other disciples, I know it's, it's easy for me to do this too, maybe it is for you sometimes as well, to, to kind of focus on all the good things that God has promised, right, that we want, that we want to lay hold of and, and forget that sometimes, well, but, but the Lord also said that if we want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted, that, that there will be you know, much suffering that comes with bringing in the kingdom of God. It's all part of, of what it means, right? And, and so, so they're focused on, let's destroy Rome. Let's rule by your side. But again, Jesus has told them before the conquering king comes the suffering servant, and that he turns now the conversation this direction. Verse 38, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So Jesus now talks about the cost that comes before the glory. The cup was a common Jewish metaphor for suffering. Of course, we know Jesus will suffer. He will suffer physically he will suffer emotionally, he will suffer spiritually as he will go to the cross and be beaten and crucified. He will also bear the full weight of the wrath of God for sin upon himself as he stands in our place to take that punishment. And then when he says the baptism with which I am baptized here, here he's not talking about our, our Christian you know, ordinance of baptism where we celebrate new life in Christ. It's an expression that is parallel a parallel thought to the cup here. He is talking here about places in the Old Testament where being underwater is a picture of being overwhelmed by calamity. And here, of course, the calamity that Jesus will face is to bear God's judgment for sin and to face the cross. 
which uh, is going to happen here very soon. But with all this in mind, look at how James and John answer verse 39. They said to him, we are able. I mean, of course, right? We can do this. We've got it. I mean, do you remember these guys were called the sons of thunder? So these are tough, rugged men. They're thinking, look, we, we can handle whatever it's going to take to establish this kingdom. Come on, let's go. Let's do it. Um, they're eager. But they haven't maybe fully processed what they're saying. Maybe you've done this too. I know I've done this in my life, or maybe I've wanted something so badly. I've committed myself. I've said yes before I even know what I'm saying yes to. And then after I say yes and start thinking about it, it's like, oh boy, <laughs> I wish I hadn't said yes to that, right? Well, that's kind of what's going on here, um, but to a commitment that, that they really can't even imagine at this point. But notice Jesus actually doesn't laugh at them or tell them to, to beat it. Like he he actually says this, he says, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And I would imagine that when Jesus said these words to James and John, he actually had compassion, knowing what they were going to face. Yes, you know, my friends, my brothers, my followers, you will drink this cup and you will be baptized this way. I, I know it's coming for you because they would both suffer greatly for God's kingdom. In the future, their hearts would change. They would sort of let go of this need to be in control and in power and sort of manipulate and all these different things that they're trying to do here. They would embrace this serving path of kingdom greatness that Jesus had modeled for them. James would actually be the first apostle martyred in Acts chapter 12, first one to die for his faith. John, they would attempt to kill John, but would not be allowed to, the only of the 12 who wasn't martyred, but he would be exiled to an island in Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation, and both of them would suffer. Um, they wouldn't die for anyone's sins, but they would suffer. But even with that suffering, there's no guarantee that they're going to get these positions of number one and number two in the coming kingdom. Look at verse 40. But to sit on my right or my left, that, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So they wouldn't be given position one and two just because they had ambition, just because they were the first ones to ask, just because they, they wanted it. They also wouldn't be given these positions because they would suffer or that their hearts would change or that they would actually do things God's way. There's just no guarantee about how this positions are going to be decided. And I think a key here for James and John and for us as well is just this ability that God can give us to learn, to let go of that need to be in control or that need to dominate others and to simply get to a place where we can trust God no matter what. And it brings to mind a question do I want Jesus for how he can make me successful or do I want Jesus simply for who he is? Do I want Jesus for how he can make me successful or simply for who he is? Well, verse 41 tells us that uh, when the other disciples hear about James and John's attempt to sort of one-up them to get thrones one and two instead of thrones 11 and 12 or anything in between, they're upset. Verse 41, hearing this, the 10 begin to feel indignant with James and John. But understand that they're indignant 
not because they think intrinsically what they did was wrong. Like, hey, you guys shouldn't be so prideful and manipulative and controlling and want to be the boss of us. Like, that's wrong, you know, kind of thing. No, it's, it's because they wanted the same thing. And they're like, dang it, they beat us to the punch, right? You ever had that happen to you? I remember uh, when I was in high school, there was this girl that I was thinking about asking out and um, was telling one of my friends about it. And he said, well, you know, I know her. And if you want to ask her out, you know, you kind of got to be this way and you got to be like that. And it got me thinking like, yeah, I, I need to work on some things before I ask her out, right? And once you know it, next week, that sucker, he asked her out, <laughs> right? I was like, dang it, he beat me to the punch, right? And I'm, now I'm really glad that none of that worked out. Kind of like that Garth Brooks song, Unanswered Prayers. You know, you're like, thank you, God, that that was an unasked date even. Um, but, but the point is, we know what that feels like. Somebody does something, they get something because they just had the you know, the wit or the, the quickness to ask before us. And that's how these other 10 feel. We know this because Jesus is about to have a come to Jesus meeting with all of them, not just the two, right? Verse 42, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. This is how things were done in the Greco Roman world. You have power, you have people under you that do your will, and if they don't do what you want, they might face severe punishment, even death, going all the way up to the Caesars um, and all the way down to the people. And the way they viewed their gods were really kind of like, like Marvel superheroes. They're just gods with superhuman powers who have attitudes just like people, and they use that power to control and to dominate. And so people did the same thing. And we may think, well, gosh, I'm glad I don't live in the Roman world, but there are ways that we nuance the same thing here. Now, what I'm not suggesting is that, so we should have nobody in charge, we shouldn't have organizational charts. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, In fact, one of the things I'm appreciative nowadays is that uh, both within the church world and even in many cases, the secular world and marketplace, there's more of a call to empower people and to be servant leaders. And I think that is much more in heart and alignment with what Christ would be teaching us here. But there are still ways that we can fall into some of these ways of thinking, right? We start to think, well, the more zeros I have behind my salary, the more people I have under me on the org chart, the more followers I have on Instagram or, or whatever media platform, that those are the things that make me great. Those are the things that make me important. And I would say Jesus is trying to get us to think differently about that here In fact, he says, verse 43, but it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And it's like, whoa. So what Jesus is saying here is that it's not about control. It's about surrender. It's not about lording over others, but learning how to serve others. Not about pride, but humility. As I said before, the kingdom way of greatness is total surrender to the will and to the heart of God. Now, Jesus puts an exclamation point on this lesson, verse 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus says he came now to serve and he came to die. The word there for ransom is latron, and it refers to a payment, a payment for the release of slaves from captivity or from bondage. And it also includes the concept of substitution. Uh, 
So when we are people who are under the slavery, in captivity to sin and to death, we are told here that we can't free ourselves, but rather the substitutionary death of Jesus pays the ransom price to set people free. And Jesus modeled this perfectly on the cross. He would drink this cup of suffering. Voluntarily, he would do this. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as recorded in Matthew 26, verse 39, he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So we know that Jesus in his humanity, as God the Son in submission to God the Father, he willingly submitted and he went to the cross and he served humanity. Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, put it this way, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus then models for us true greatness. He did it in the garden. He did it on the cross. He's teaching this to his disciples here and teaching it to us also through his word that this is true greatness. Now, as we move on from verse 45, the, uh, the scene kind of changes. Uh, you might say it's a bit of a, a scene two or an act two to this question, what do you want me to do for you? Because Jesus is going to ask the exact same question in a different context and to different people than we saw here in these other verses. Verse 46 says, Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. So when you see that word bar, a lot of times in the Bible, it just means the son of, right? So Barnabas, son of encouragement. Here it's Bartimaeus, the son of Bartimaeus, kind of like, you know, Johansson, right? Or something like that. Um, Jericho is a wealthy city at this time. It is a, it's a city with a beautiful climate. So much like Fresno, right, this week? Um, <laughs> no. Uh, but it's common for beggars to be here, right? A lot of wealth, an easy place to kind of, if you have to live homeless. So there's a lot of homeless people. It's a very common sight. Um, and Bartimaeus is here. Matthew's gospel actually tells us there were two beggars, but uh, Mark chooses to focus on Bartimaeus because he's the more vocal one of the two. So verse 47 says, uh, when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When you look at that, you know, it's like, wow, look at that prayer that Bartimaeus cries out to Jesus. Maybe you've been there. I know I've been there. Maybe you're even there right now. Just a point in life where, whether it's pressures or crisis or just a feeling of loneliness or emptiness or even the result of our own sins or somebody that we care about who is suffering and we just cry out to God, Lord, I don't know what to do. Help me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's all we can say. 
it's usually something very difficult that it takes to get us to that place of just complete dependency. But you know, it's a good place to be. Whatever it took to get us there, it's a good place to be. A place of just willingness to put that dependency on display like Bartimaeus does here. He doesn't care who sees him or hears him. He doesn't have any pretense. He just wants Christ. Uh, by the way, that title, Son of David, that was a uh, title that was used often, a national title for the Messiah, because the, the human, in the human dis, uh, uh, ancestry, Jesus would be descended from King David. And so Son of David is the title used there. Notice verse 48. It says, Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, the people, they don't like the fact that this blind beggar is crying out to Jesus. In fact, uh, the verb there, it's in the imperfect tense. It means they were repeatedly telling him. So it wasn't like just one time. It was, he kept yelling. They kept telling him to shut up. He kept yelling. They kept, just kept going on and on. Because see, for, for the disciples and, and even these crowds that were with Jesus, they, again, they're viewing this as, hey, this is the conquering procession. This is the victory parade. We're going to Jerusalem. From there, we're going to overthrow Rome. The king doesn't have time to talk to this beggar, right? I mean, blind people were protected in terms of uh, being provided for by the Jewish law, but they were also social outcasts. They were illiterate. They were not respected in the society. So the fact that Jesus would take time in their minds, they're thinking, no, this is not something that a king should waste his time doing. Uh, earlier in, in Mark 10, the disciples had rebuked children for coming to Jesus because children were kind of looked down upon a little bit. And Jesus had already told them not to do that. So it's like, but they're still, here they are still kind of doing the same kind of activity here. Um, but again, Bartimaeus just keeps going. And then notice what Jesus does. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man saying to him, take courage, stand up. He is calling for you. So isn't it interesting how the crowds change so quickly to Bartimaeus? You know, once they realize, oh, Jesus does want to talk to him, they're like, hey, come on, bro, you know, get up. He wants to talk to you. You know, some are probably like, yeah, you know, Bartimaeus, that's my guy, that's my boy. You know, we've always been tight, right? I'm, I'm going to walk with you to Jesus. Uh, it just shows the, the fickleness. But, but the point here is that Jesus, he hears and he sees and he cares. He calls now. Bartimaeus to come. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And now verse 51, the same question. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? Same question, different context. Seems like a strange question to ask a man who's blind. Like it would be obvious what he wanted. But you see, Jesus is giving him the opportunity to express his own faith. He's empowering him. He's giving him dignity. Uh, Matthew's gospel, chapter 20, verse 34, adds that in this moment, Jesus is moved with compassion for this man. And you know, as we think about that, I would think that he may have had a different tone to his voice. Like, I don't know what his tone was with James and John. You know, they came with kind of a calculated plan. They're trying to put Jesus in a corner where he has to say yes to their request. He may have been kind of like, okay, guys, what do you want me to do for you? But I would think with Bartimaeus, it was much more, hey, what do you want me 
to do for you. Compassion. And now with this specific question, Bartimaeus gives a specific answer. And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. That term Rabboni, it's interesting. It means my master. And it's only used one other time in the gospels in John chapter 20, verse 16. When Mary Magdalene sees Jesus risen from the dead, she calls him Rabboni. It's a very powerful expression of personal faith. See, the title Son of David, everybody used that for the Messiah. That was a national title, but Rabboni was very personal. In verse 52, Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. That verb for has made you well, it's sozo, which is where we also get the word for salvation, where the Bible talks about being saved from our sin by the work of Christ. And Jesus uses that same word to talk here about the the faith that has made him well uh, for his physical healing, which is interesting. But also when it says he began following him, the word akalutheo, it's the same word used to describe followers of Jesus. So there seems to be here that this man was not just uh, physically healed. He did not just have faith in Jesus to physically heal him, but he also had faith in Jesus for who he is and what he has done and that he began now a journey of following Christ as a full follower of Jesus. And whereas we saw earlier that kind of the pride of the disciples was leading them to try to control Jesus, to force his hand to give them what they wanted, in contrast, Bartimaeus certainly has dreams and desires of his own in his heart, but he starts with a full surrender. He just wants Jesus. He just wants whatever mercy Jesus will give him. And that's where he starts with that surrender to his will and to his heart. Um, Again, showing us that the kingdom way of greatness is total surrender to the will and heart of God. And how about you and how about me? Have you ever thought about this question? Like if Jesus was to stand before you today and to ask you directly, what do you want me to do for you? What answer do you have prepared in your heart to give him to that question? What's the heart posture? Is it, uh, hey, Jesus, you know, I, I pretty much have everything figured out. I know exactly what I need. I know exactly what I want to do. So if you could just kind of help me out, make it happen, that would be great. Or is it Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There are things I want, maybe even desperately want, but I just surrender to you. I surrender to your heart. I surrender to your will. Is there an attitude of, God, you owe me. You owe me. And if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to be angry at you. Maybe I'll even leave the church or the faith. Or is it simply, God, I owe everything to you because of what you've done for me in Christ. And I surrender to you. You know, as I reflect on my life, I can identify several places where I have kingdom conflict, areas where I try to control and I plot a lot more than I pray and I 
I, I kind of tell God what I think he should do, or I even try to make deals with him in some ways rather than surrendering. And I do that. Uh, I'll do that in my marriage. Um, by the way, I don't think I introduced my beautiful wife, Chris, is sitting here in the front row. <laughs> We've been married 27 years. Um, I do that in marriage. I do that with finances. I do that with plans I have. I do that with uh, people I love and care about. I want them to make certain decisions and I want to control and make it happen. Like I want to make the decision for them sometimes. And the truth is I really can't control any of that. I need to surrender to God in that. I can have those dreams. I can have those specific desires and requests and I can ask for them. But at the end of the day, am I able to say, Lord, I want you, I love you for who you are, not for what you do for me or what you give me. And all of that to just say, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Because to choose this path that Bartimaeus chose in answer to that question, it's, it's not to sit back and do nothing. When I say surrender, it doesn't mean just sit back and just lay there. It's to actively trust It's to actively serve. It's to actively cry out to the Lord in true dependency. And it's to actively abide in Christ, to spend time with Christ. You know, just uh, a week ago, I had somebody who I hadn't talked to for years call me and say, hey, I want to meet and I have some questions for you. And he started the conversation out by saying, I just want you to know, this guy had been in music ministry in a church and even gone to a ministry school overseas. He said, hey, I just want you to know that um, I don't believe anymore. I'm not a Christian. Um, I've, I've deconstructed my faith. He said, I know that's a buzzword, but that's what I did. I deconstructed my faith. And I, he kind of explained his journey to me. And then he asked me the question, he said, how are you able to stay with all the different things? How have you been able to stay with the church and with Christ? And one of the things I said to him, I said, well, I said, you have to actively abide in Christ. Now, I believe when you come to faith in Christ, you're born again and you don't, your salvation is not works-based. So you're, you're saved, right? You're a child of God. You're in the family of God. But for the person who truly knows Christ, they're going to abide in Christ. And that doesn't mean we don't have days where, you know, so if I miss the Bible reading for a week, do I? No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I did tell him, I said, if you were to abide in Christ, see, my faith isn't in the church or the culture of the church, especially is what he was talking about. My faith is in Christ. My focus is on Christ, who Christ is, what Christ has done. So abide in Christ. That was my challenge and encouragement to him. Henry Nouwen says this, listen to the voice who calls you the beloved because otherwise you will run around begging for affirmation, for praise, and for success. So let's ask ourselves, where might God be calling me to surrender today? Where might God be calling me to trust today? Where might God be calling me to serve today? Or if I'm already serving, maybe he just wants me to cultivate a different attitude about it. Where might God be calling me to rest in his love today? Where in my life do I need to cry out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time with my brothers and sisters here at River Valley Church. Thank you that you are a God who lovingly, patiently calls us into relationship with yourself And even when we might have flashes of those attitudes like James and John, where we just kind of say, God, here's what I want you to do for me. You lovingly and patiently walk with us. You never leave us or forsake us in Christ. My prayer is that each of us who know you 
would walk with you in this and just day by day allow you to change us and transform us into your image. If anyone's here maybe that doesn't yet know Christ, that they would consider the offer, the free gift of forgiveness that comes by believing Jesus died in their place and rose from the grave and to ask you for forgiveness. And Lord, help us in all this to just on a daily basis say, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.